You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A murder occurs on the high seas, and the result is a revised understanding of constitutional rights, one that still has pertinence today. The American ship Herbert Fuller was bound from Boston to a port in South America. It set off on July 2, 1896. On board were 13 people. The captain, Charles Nash, the first mate, Bram, the second mate, Bloomberg, a steward, six crew, one of whose name was Charles Brown, the captain's wife, Laura, and a young Harvard student named Lester Monks, who was a passenger. The vessel proceeded on her course, and then on the night between July 13th and July 14th, Bloomberg was on deck, and he was relieved by Bram, the first mate. At this time, midnight, the captain, his wife, the passenger monks, and the first and second mates were all housed in the after cabin, occupying separate rooms. The crew and the steward all slept together in a cabin at the front of the ship. When that watch change occurred, Bram was on deck. One of the crew, Charles Brown, took the wheel of the ship. It was his duty to remain there until 2 o'clock. At 2 a.m. that night, though, the passenger, Lester Monks, was aroused by a scream and another sound, characterized by him as a gurgling sound. He arose, went to the captain's room, and found the captain's cot overturned and the captain lying on the floor by it. He spoke to him, got no answer, put his hand on the captain's body, found it damp or wet. He then went into Mrs. Nash's room, did not see her, but saw dark spots on her bed and suspected something was wrong. He went on deck found Bram, the second mate, and told him, the captain is killed. Both Monks and Bram go below, take the lantern, burning dimly. Captain Nash, his wife, and Bloomberg, the second mate, all were dead, each with several wounds upon the head, apparently given with a sharp instrument, perhaps an axe, penetrating the skull. Each one had been killed, apparently, in their rooms. The whole crew was called and informed of the deaths. The bodies were placed in a jolly boat that would float along with the ship. No blood or spots of blood were ever discovered on the person or clothing of any of the people in the crew, nor did any suspicion immediately go to anyone. Abram, the first mate, was now in command of the ship. He made Charles Brown the chief mate, another crewman the second mate. Bram initially said he wanted to go to French Guiana, but after consulting with everyone, the consensus was that the ship go to Halifax. Two days pass. And there starts to be talking among the crew that perhaps one of the seamen, Charles Brown, is acting awfully strange. Also, he changed his clothes after he left the wheel that night. Brown acknowledged that he had changed clothes, but said he had done so only because he was cold. First mate Bram had him chained in irons on suspicion of murder. Without his first mate, Bram navigated the ship until Sunday when they started to reach the shore of Halifax, now with land in sight. Brown states to some of his shipmates that he saw the cabin through a window in the after part in the starboard side of the house, and he saw Bram kill the captain. As he would tell it later in a newspaper interview, the steward now played a crucial role. He had the respect of the crew. He suspected Bram because he was acting strange. He had wanted to go to French Guiana. And in this newspaper interview, he said later, I saw two spots of blood on him. The steward started to believe Brown's story and convinced the crew that there was suspicion on Bram, too. They overpowered Bram, put him in irons along with Brown. So both Bram and Brown are now brought to Halifax in irons. This is where a policeman named Nicholas Power questions the first mate, Bram, strips the defendant, tells the defendant to submit to an examination. All of this took place before Bram had been examined by any United States counsel. According to Power's testimony, he then said to him, Bram, we are trying to unravel this horrible mystery. Your position is rather an awkward one. I have had Brown in this office, and he made a statement that he saw you do the murder. 
And this is where Bram made a crucial and probably not a helpful reaction to his case. Bram said, He could not have seen me. Where was he? Nicholas Power said. He states he was at the wheel. Well, he could not see me from there. Nicholas Power then said, Now look here, Bram. I am satisfied that you killed the captain, from all I have heard from Mr. Brown. But some of us think you could not have done all this crime alone. If you had an accomplice, you should say so. Bram then said, Well, I think and many others on board the ship think that Brown is the murderer, but I don't know anything about it. Nicholas Power then says, Bram is now short in his replies, and the conversation ends. Power's testimony, later in the case that would occur in Boston against Bram, points things towards him and at least makes conviction easier because Bram appeared to have made a confession in saying he couldn't have seen me from there. Authorities didn't even end up prosecuting Brown. This despite the fact that he was a bit of a weird-acting man. Cross-examination in a court case would bring out that Charles Brown had been confined to a mental institution in Rotterdam five years earlier, following a violent psychotic episode. Bram's defense tried to get testimony from the passenger monks who said that in the seconds between him hearing the scream of the captain's wife and his meeting with Bram on deck, Bram would not have time to change his clothes. Yet Bram was convicted and sentenced to death. However, on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, his conviction was overturned because the search that occurred in Halifax was an illegal search. There was no warrant. He wasn't informed of his rights. It was the same as if Bram had been made to testify against him because of both the Fourth and the Fifth Amendment. The conviction was thrown out by the U.S. Supreme Court. On retrial, Bram was again convicted, but now the jury was able to spare his life. This case got a lot of media attention and the attention of an acclaimed mystery writer, Mary Roberts Reinhardt, who became convinced of Bram's innocence. She based the 1914 novel, The Afterhouse, on his case, and it portrayed Brown under the name Charlie Jones as a homicidal maniac. Bram was released on parole from his life sentence, and President Woodrow Wilson granted Bram a full pardon in 1919. Bram said, this is the closing chapter in a wonderful case. Bram's existence to be alive for that pardon is only because of a fourth, and also a fifth, of a series of amendments known as the Bill of Rights, an equalizer that makes law enforcement figures and prosecutors of the most powerful government of the world submit to civilian law and do things that might seem crazy given how important their services in finding murderers, kidnappers, robbers, and terrorists and making sure that they are punished. They sometimes have to give notice to people. They have to delay searches in order to get proper legal authorization. They have to define what they're doing before they do it. And all because, in that Fourth Amendment, it says, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Says a little, but it says a lot. Your house, your person, your papers, your things are safe. The government of the United States can only order specific warrants, never general ones. And the agents who execute those warrants must go to a judge and affirm what he or she is searching for and why there's a higher likelihood than not that a crime has been committed. When a judge says yes, it's still not 100% authorization to do everything the agent wants to do. The judge just says yes to a specific search of a specific place. That's at least how the amendment reads. This American ideal echoes an earlier history where a British government ordered warrants that were not so specific. A famous case was in Boston in 1761. The English wanted to cut down on smuggling in the Boston colony. The Crown's agents would search anywhere they wanted to find smuggled goods. The warrants issued were general, meaning agents could search anyone in Boston, any place, anywhere. A number of Boston merchants were fed up with this and challenged these writs of assistance. The most prominent was James Otis, representing the merchants at the time, argued that the common law of England banned such general warrants. But common law in this case proved no defense for the American colonists. Otis lost his case, but yet his argument was popular in the increasingly rebellious colonies. Today's situation stretches the forth beyond the realm of its origination. When we arrive at a TSA security check part, can we be searched? We see little notes that say the TSA 
has been through our baggage when you get to your destination and open your bags up. Border crossings since 1977 invite reasonable searches simply by virtue of the fact that the person is at the border and should expect it. In 2004, the court said travelers had a lesser expectation of privacy, and while the Fourth Amendment was there, the nation, too, needed to be protected from unwanted persons or effects, and the only place to do that was the border. In 2001, the Supreme Court ruled that police could not use a thermal camera to search for marijuana from outside a suspect's home. But, in another case, they ruled that you could fly a plane over and look at the backyard. Just recently, a surprising majority at the Supreme Court, Antonin Scalia, and Clarence Thomas joined with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor and Alina Kagan to say that a drug-sniffing dog, a dog that didn't go beyond the suspect's lawn, was an illegal search. What about your persons? The Fourth Amendment says you can be secure in your persons. Yet Maryland still took Alonzo King and swabbed him in the cheek. DNA evidence then tied him to a 2003 rape. He was convicted. Maryland Appeal Court said the conviction should be thrown out. The Supreme Court disagreed. In a 5-4 decision, they ruled that DNA collection was akin to fingerprinting, a normal part of arrest. Agreeing with them was former Justice Stevens, no longer on the court, but a supporter of the decision. It seems a lesser intrusion than a search of private papers, Stevens said. The Supreme Court said you can conduct such a DNA swab if the person is taken into the station for arrest for a serious crime. Can't just pull them out of the car and do it. But what part of the population has no protection from this swab search? Those that are arrested, but not those that are just convicted, those that are arrested. And that was the problem that was noted from an unlikely source. Justice Antonin Scalia, who dissented in the case and read his dissent from the bench. Today's judgment will, to be sure, have the beneficial effect of solving more crimes. Then again, so would the taking of DNA samples from anyone who flies on an airplane. I doubt that the proud men who wrote the Charter of Our Liberties would have been so eager to open their mouths for royal inspection. What we think of as core American values, rights, liberties, and protections from an oppressive government were not unknown in the time when New York and Pennsylvania were part of British America. This was true of speech protection, but also true of the protection from search and seizure. John Wilkes was a radical member of Parliament and a satirist. In 1763, he was upset about the treaty with France that ended the Seven Years' War, that ended in a way that seemed to be too kind to the French. He wasn't the only one. A lot of British and certainly Americans felt the same way. But Wilkes got personal satirized the Earl of Boot, the key negotiator, Prime Minister, and a pamphlet written anonymously hinted that he was a Jacobin. After seizing and searching the premises of 49 printers to determine who the author was, it was discovered it was Wilkes and he was put in the Tower of London. But those printers who had their property searched sued, and a jury found against the government and for the printers. Each was awarded 300 pounds. Eventually, Wilkes was released too, and said, Chief Justice Pratt, general warrants are subversive to the liberty of the subject. This is a case that was followed in America, and in another case, well cited in the American press, Eastick v. Carrington, a man's home was searched against his will, said the British judge in that case, Lord Camden, no man may set foot upon my home without trespass. If he admits trespass, well, he must show positive law excused him. That principle is why the fourth is noted in no searches without warrants, no warrants without probable cause. Probable cause, the idea that it is more likely than not that a crime will be committed, a pretty high standard. That is the basis of American law, and the stakes are high. Without PC, without warrants, the exclusionary rule can destroy a case. In 1957, three Cleveland officers went to the home of Dolry Mapp and asked to enter. They had information that a suspect in a bombing case and illegal gambling equipment was at the MAP home. MAP refused entry until they got a warrant. This was a tough character, and so when two officers returned not much longer with a piece of paper, she took it from them and saw it was no warrant. They handcuffed her. When they searched her house, they found no gambling equipment. They found no bombing suspect, but they did find pornographic material in a suitcase. 
Mrs. Mapp. She was arrested for possession of pornography. The Supreme Court threw out that conviction because of the exclusionary rule. Evidence obtained illegally could not be used in the trial. And in Mapp v. Ohio, they applied what had been applied to Bram's case so long ago to the states using the 14th Amendment. The exclusionary rule is a powerful statement about individual rights over public safety. Benjamin Cardozo, in complaining about this exclusionary rule, the criminal goes free because the constable has blundered. Its intention is to provide a disincentive for prosecutors and police to illegally gather evidence. Prior to MAP, though, crafty federal prosecutors could take evidence that they couldn't use because it was obtained illegally and handed over to state officials. There are exceptions to the exclusionary rule. Evidence obtained from a private person illegally is admissible. Evidence obtained from a search, illegal or not, of someone else's house can still convict you. And, in some cases, if evidence almost definitely would have been found, even if the illegal search didn't happen, the evidence can be used. Courts, indeed, have been frustrated by the downside of the exclusionary rule. These frustrations came out during the 1980s. Burbank, California cops received a tip that two people named Armanch and Patty were selling large amounts of cocaine and quaaludes from their residence. An informant said he had witnessed Patty sell drugs five months earlier, and he knew of a shoebox in their house that contained cash. Burbank police began scouting the house and various other residences. A known drug dealer did enter the house and left with a paper sack. They traced this defendant to a guy named Alberto Leone, and they searched Alberto Leone's Glendale home. Jackpot. At the Glendale home, they saw lots of traffic, paper bags leaving, many of whom had prior drug involvement. On this, they obtained a warrant. A large number of drugs were found in Leone's home, but not so much out of the original home in Burbank that they had searched based on the original tip. Thus, a court threw out the conviction. Foreman's testimony was not correct, so the warrant was based on a false premise. Therefore, the evidence couldn't be used. In U.S. v. Leon, the Supreme Court weighed in on this, and they took aim at the exclusionary rule. Exclusion, they said, extracts a high social cost. In this case, a drug dealer would go free. The exclusionary rule the court insisted in U.S. v. Leon is not part of the Fourth Amendment. Judiciary created rule not to protect defendants, but to operate as a deterrent against officers doing illegal searches. But in this case, officers acted in good faith. They obtained a warrant and obtained unquestioned evidence through that warrant. There would be no incentive effect here if you threw out this case. They acted in good faith. And thus, U.S. v. Leon established a good faith exemption. Well, there's still a lot of issues that arise. So now you have to talk about odd Mrs. Huff. Once again, Burbank, now 30 years later, and the delicate subject of school safety. There is a rumor from other students that her son, Vincent Huff, will shoot up the school. Cops go to the house. We just want to speak to you, Mrs. Huff. Please come out, etc. No warrant, no intention yet to search. Miss Huff comes out of the house and refuses to let the police enter. Okay, they still want to talk to her then on her porch. Mrs. Huff, they say, do you have any weapons? With that, Mrs. Huff says absolutely nothing, but zips into the house. Now, wait a second. They just asked about weapons, and she runs in the house. Uh, okay, cops go in. They question Mrs. Huff. They question Vincent Huff. They realize that Huff is no danger. It's just a bunch of rumors spread by kids. And Mrs. Huff is just strange. Huff sues the officers later, though, for the illegal search. The Supreme Court sided with the officers, so that when an officer could be in harm, there's no violation to be had. When the police come to your home, do they have to knock on the door? This has actually been tested recently. It was always the case that there was a strict knock-and-announce rule. The police just can't barge in. They have to announce who they are and at least attempt to have the suspect open the door. But in a case where police did not do that, Hudson v. Michigan, uh, the court, Anton Scalia and four of his colleagues said, they should use the knock-and-announce procedure, knock-and-wait 30 seconds, 
But if they don't, you can't apply the exclusionary rule. Yes, it's a disincentive, but it's a too powerful one that would let a criminal go free. They can use the evidence police get in a search. All of this involves that home and the early concept, a quote from William Pitt, who Americans respected for the most part, home as castle. What about if you're just on the street? So in San Bruno, California, cops searched a man named Samson only because he was on parole and they find amphetamines on him. In a 6-3 decision, authored by Clarence Thomas, found that no, parole means privacy is reduced. You can't just search anybody on the street, but a man on parole could be searched. Police can ask your name, as they did with Larry Hibble. Your name, asking that, is not an unreasonable search of you. It's not violating your Fourth or Fifth Amendment rights. A name alone, according to the Supreme Court, is not enough to be incriminating. It is reasonable. Nevada requires you to identify yourself to a police officer. Not doing so is a crime. You don't have a right to give Nevada a false name. This represents some of the recent court thinking on the Fourth, and also represents the three-dimensional nature of all the issues affected by this. 1925, and a car speeds down a highway between Detroit and Grand Rapids. A man named George Carroll and a friend are in the vehicle. But it is not a recreational ride. In the car's back seat was a case of bootleg gin. But the feds were on to Carroll, and they had tailed him. Previously, they had tried to get Carroll to sell illegal booze to an undercover agent. He didn't fall for it. Now Treasury agents thought they had their man on the highway. They pulled Carroll over and confiscated the booze. But there was a little matter they had not attended to, getting a warrant. That was because Congress, as part of the Enforcement Act surrounding Prohibition, had allowed federal agents to run searches for illegal booze without getting a warrant. Well, Carroll, bootlegger though he might be, became a constitutional defendant. He sued and said, my rights have been violated. This was a search without a warrant, and the case made its way to the Supreme Court. Carroll's lawyers argued that Carroll's car was no different than his home as defined in the Fourth Amendment. And by entering it, the Treasury agents conducted an unreasonable search and seizure without a warrant. The Supreme Court, however, didn't agree. Because, they argued, it's a little different. A car is not a home. The owner of the car can drive away, while the police issue a warrant. Exigent circumstances the court said, were what dictated the result here. A car is a moving home if it is a home at all, and you can get away in one. But this judgment was not unlimited, the court made clear. It would be intolerable if agents were authorized to stop every automobile on the basis of finding liquor, and thus subject all persons legally using the highways to the indignity of a search. Carol is still the basis for legal thinking in questions of car searches. But it doesn't cover all the issues. Can police search a mobile home? Why, yes, the court ruled in one case. Can they use evidence that they find in an impounded car? Yes, in South Dakota v. Oberman. Can they search a box within a car? No, in Arkansas v. Sander in 1979. Then, changed to yes in Acevedo in 1991. But wait, can a police department stop people on a highway randomly? What if it's to protect against drunk driving? Well, Carol said you couldn't. It's a broad search of many innocent people, subjecting them to an indignity, as per that Carroll decision. But in Michigan Police v. Stitz, this was found to be constitutional. The goal of stopping drunk drivers was important, and the indignity was small. Okay, can they do this for narcotics? This has been more of a question from courts. The irony is amazing. If you went back in a time machine and entered a federal courtroom in 1980, you would note that Mark Felt, former number two of the FBI and the Nixon administration, was on trial. And in his defense was former President Richard Nixon. Felt, of course, was later revealed to be Deep Throat, the confidential background source of Woodward and Bernstein in all the president's men in the series of Washington Post articles that took down the president. Nixon had no knowledge, of course, that Mark Felt was deep throat, and supported his former FBI deputy. We've discussed a bit about the Fourth Amendment and the automobile 
What about the telephone? In fact, today, the security of our communications and everything surrounding it seems to be the most relevant issue to the Fourth Amendment. But to understand what's going on with that, you need to go back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s. During the 1960s, there were many peaceful protests of the Vietnam War, but also violence. The Weather Underground was the most prominent group responsible for bombings against government offices, including FBI buildings. The FBI fought back with a series of break-ins into homes of suspected weathermen. The operation, known as Cointel Pro, was illegal. These so-called black bag jobs, break-ins without warrants, in the middle of the night, when either the suspects wouldn't notice or the suspects were not there, were outlawed by the Supreme Court in a 1972 case. The break-ins conducted by the FBI occurred in 73 and 74 after the Supreme Court decision. In 1975, Senator Frank Church of Idaho ordered a sweeping review of the American intelligence activities and the possible threat to civil liberties. Cointelpro was discussed. Also discussed was a far-reaching mail search program. Between 1950 and 1973, 215,000 pieces of mail written within the United States had been inspected. While the inspections conducted by the FBI with United Postal Service employees involved was supposed to be of the mail cover variety, in other words, just looking at addresses on the envelope, it was revealed that agents would open mail it was post-Watergate, and all secret covert ops were under question. COINTELPRO came up. FBI agents were questioned about the black bag jobs that they had conducted. Mark Felt defended his former subordinates at FBI. They did that on my orders, he said. The Carter administration, under Attorney General Griffin Bell, prosecuted Felt, along with the former head of the FBI, Patrick Gray, and others. And despite some testimony and character witnesses, like the former president, Felt was convicted. Once again, with the help of Richard Nixon, who had no idea that Felt was the deep throat source, Felt was pardoned by President Reagan. The Church Committee, or really the Senate Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, now you know why they call it the Church Committee, was led by Frank Church of Idaho. Along with some names you'll recognize, Walter Mondale, Senator from Minnesota, Gary Hart, Senator from Colorado, but also John Tower, Senator from Texas, Howard Baker of Tennessee, and Barry Goldwater on the Republican side. So it's bipartisan. The committee looked at the CIA, the FBI, the NSC, NSA, Department of Defense. The committee looked at everything from the Roosevelt administration on forward. Now, most of its attention goes to what it did referring to the Nixon years, but we'll talk a bit about it, its larger investigation. Among the findings show that a bipartisan zeal existed for the snoop. Franklin Roosevelt asked the FBI to put in his files the names of citizens sending telegrams to the White House opposing his national defense policy as prior to the buildup to World War II. President Truman had the agency track a well-known Washington lawyer, as well as labor unions and some journalists. Eisenhower recorded FBI reports on political heavyweights, Eleanor Roosevelt, Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas among them. Kennedy wiretapped a congressional staff member, three executive officials, a lobbyist, and a Washington law firm. Robert Kennedy received details of the FBI tap on Martin Luther King and bugged a congressman. Johnson asked the FBI to conduct checks of members of Senator Barry Goldwater's staff, when he was his opponent in 1964, and used the FBI to monitor political activities at the 1964 Democratic Convention in Atlantic City. Nixon authorized a program of wiretaps which provided the White House purely political or personal information, including information about a Supreme Court justice. The Church Committee revealed to the public about the intense FBI surveillance of Martin Luther King Jr., a campaign described within the FBI as a war, an attempt to neutralize him as a civil rights leader with influence. Surveillance, sneak-and-peak break-ins, informants, wiretaps were all used to track his plans and his comings and goings. The FBI mailed Dr. King a recording from microphones hidden in a hotel room, which an agent said was an attempt to destroy his marriage. The note said, 
he should commit suicide or it would be released. From 1947 to May 1975, the National Security Administration received from international cable companies millions of cables which have been sent by American citizens with the expectation of privacy. Since the 1930s, FBI and National Security Agency agents have routinely wiretopped and bugged American citizens without the benefit of a judicial warrant. Past subjects included congressmen, journalists, White House advisors, and anti-war activists. In 1975, those kind of revelations, which had been thought about, but now were decidedly made, shocked a public already angered by Watergate, and certainly Watergate and the dethroning of the executive branch. It's discussed a lot about the Church Committee. Less discussed is the committee's discussion of history. That's a very long report. They looked at a lot of the history. They found that the origination of the FBI or the Bureau of Investigation was during World War I and the so-called slacker raids of 50,000 people who were seen as draft dodgers, as well as a huge informant program. This is during World War I where Americans, loyal Americans, could tell the government about un-American activities in their area. The Church Committee credited Attorney General Harlan Fisk Stone under the Coolidge administration for ending the investigation of politics or opinion at the FBI and setting that standard. Now, one of the hires he made to implement this program was J. Edgar Hoover. Some of the fault for the abuses that would go later, the committee gives to a directive from Franklin Roosevelt. In 1934, he directed Hoover to take a look at the subversive activity domestically in the United States. Specifically, he ordered Hoover to investigate the Nazi movement in the U.S. and expanded it later in the 1930s to look at fascism and communism generally. Roosevelt and Hoover did everything not to seek approval from Congress, the theory being if it was for national security, the presidential authorization was enough. Now, it was certainly a noble goal, but that triggered the use of the FBI broadly within the United States. In reaction to the Church Committee, Congress passed FISA, which limited search and seizure that could be conducted in the name of national security. Congress had already swung the pendulum with the National Wiretap Act. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. The notion of a pen register goes all the way back to telegraph technology. The pen would record the message, and the register would be a log of who sent the message. That concept moved to the telephone. A pen register is the record that the telephone company keeps of which number is dialed by which number. It would become a debated point in the late 70s and still is today. To wiretap a phone conversation, to hear the actual conversation of people talking without either party's consent, the government and state governments needed a warrant. Listening in on a citizen, doing so when that citizen doesn't know the government is listening in, where a person would have a reasonable expectation of privacy 
is against the fourth. It is unreasonable search in a sense. Now here, and in so many cases that we're talking about, you can't even bring up the fourth without thinking about the fifth as well. One of the reasons that the law needs to establish that the party had a reasonable expectation they might be listened to, if a person is forced to testify against themselves, that's a violation of another amendment, the Fifth Amendment. Government does not have the right to compel you to testify against yourself. They have to prove the case. Can't do it in a sneaky way by listening in on a phone conversation that you didn't think, that the suspect did not think, would be public. The controlling case here is cats. The government tried to wiretap the payphone of a known gambling ring operator. They knew that he went to this payphone. He did not know he was being tapped, of course, and they caught him conducting his gambling. He sued, and the Supreme Court ruled 1967 that the wiretap, which there was no warrant for, was an illegal search. And although Katz was not in his home, he was in a public payphone booth, he had an expectation of privacy when he closed the door of that phone booth. While there aren't too many of those public phone booths anymore, and certainly where there are a few public phones, there aren't many of them with doors that you can slam behind you. There's a lot of that case that remains legal precedent. But what about the pen register? What if I just want the names and numbers of people you called, but not to listen in on the conversations? If I am a detective, what if you're a suspected robber who now is suspected of harassing your victim with phone calls, threatening sometimes? You are a danger to society, potentially, and certainly to this victim. Can I ask AT&T, or in this case, Bell Telephone, to give me a list of the numbers you called in the past month to determine if you are the person, indeed, who is harassing the victim? She says you are. In 1979, Smith v. Maryland, the Supreme Court allowed the monitoring of PIN registers for this exact situation. While a phone call has a reasonable expectation of privacy, a person probably doesn't reasonably expect that no one would know the numbers they call. After all, the telephone company does. So this concept of a mail cover search, you know, just looking outside the envelope, the concept of a pen register search, just looking at the numbers you call, when applied to the Internet, it gets a little tricky. Governments have done as much as to interpret that, say, a subject line in an email this should be part of the pen register, the same as a, a phone number you called on a telephone bill in some cases. Even the more complex, what would seem to be the out-of-message details of Internet use. For instance, an IP address from which you could get a website address, the amount of time that you spent on the site, the amount of kilobytes that you sent from one site to another or one person to another, which in some cases could identify a document, particularly if it's a document the government gave to someone else to see if you'd take it. If you buy a product, the URL could identify that product that you bought. So there's a lot outside the message when talking about the internet than the context of an email text or what you might write into a website that makes it difficult to apply the pen register concept to the internet. After the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the United States in 2001, the USA Patriot Act was passed. It was passed overwhelmingly by Congress. The bill represented a challenge to the Fourth Amendment protection. It was written by the nation's top prosecutor, John Ashcroft, Attorney General, at a time when the former senator sought to eliminate aspects of the justice system that terrorists might utilize to do the nation harm. No amendments were allowed in the bill's passage. No discussion, debate, suggestion. Only an up or down vote. The legislation, though, had a lot of effects. Four stand out in terms of this discussion. The Patriot Act allowed the government to request information about American citizens from third parties. Furthermore, it required those third parties to stay gag. That is, the third party, say a telephone company or an internet provider, could not tell the user, under penalty of law, about the request they received from the government or what they were doing. The Patriot Act allowed for searches of homes and property without notice to the owner if it was for a national security purpose. Notice is a key part of search and seizure in a democracy. How else do you test if a warrant is legit, if you're not going to be home when the police search? What if police have the wrong home and you can't look at the warrant? What if they search outside the warrant's scope? 
There's no way to challenge any of these things if you're not present. These are what are called sneak and peek searches. And if it's for a national security purpose, the Patriot Act permits this. It expanded the FISA exception to warrantless wiretapping. Now, we discussed this earlier. In reaction to the Church Committee, FISA was created as a balance between the excesses of the CIA, FBI of the 50s and 70s, and the reality of the Cold War. A FISA panel is a panel of judges and approves a warrant if the purpose of the wiretap is to gather foreign intelligence. After all, the thinking behind FISA is there'll be no trial, so the fourth or fifth is not in danger. The person's not going to be put on trial. It's for national security purposes. The saving grace of FISA really, though, was its rarity. It's only used in some cases, but under the Patriot Act, FISA was expanded in a couple of ways. The FISA exemption now could be used. In other words, you can go and get a search without a warrant if a significant purpose of the search, but it doesn't have to be all the search, if a significant purpose of the search is to gather foreign intelligence. It used to read, the purpose. Judges can furthermore not deny a request. It just has to be certified before them by the agent pursuing the FISA warrant. There's no opportunity for the judge to say no. Yes, the agent is appearing before a judge. Yes, they're subject to an oath. Yes, they're subject to possible perjury later. Now, the Patriot Act also created national pen register track and trace warrants. If a judge in Virginia approved a track and trace, it could be used in California. In 2004, Brandon Mayfield was arrested by the FBI. The Oregon lawyer, they said, was involved in the commuter train terrorist incident in Madrid, Spain. The FBI laboratory identified Mayfield from a fingerprint found in the bag of detonators, handed over to the FBI from the Spanish National Police. The FBI's computers compared the Spanish prints to a national database and picked out 20 prints. Then an FBI examiner, working by eye, looked at the 20 and found a match of print number 17. The supervisor of examiners concurred with his match. It was Mayfield. 24-hour surveillance of Mayfield began. They also learned about him. They learned that Mayfield was a Muslim, married an Egyptian, and had represented a convicted terrorist, though not in a terrorist case. And through his attorney work, he would therefore have contacts with suspects the FBI wanted to talk to in other cases. FBI went to FISA to get approval. During this time, the Spanish came back to the FBI and said, no, we don't agree with the print. We don't believe this is the person. The FBI talks to them. Now in the process of that, the press finds out that there is a Madrid suspect, a leak either in the FBI, Spanish police, or somewhere else. Now DOJ, FBI, apply for a warrant to now detain Mayfield as a material witness and to search his home and office. Mayfield, of course, denied that he had anything to do with it. He applied for home detention. It was denied, and he goes to county prison. The court hires its own fingerprint expert and agrees with FBI. The problem is, on the same day, Spanish police say fingerprint number 17 is an Algerian named Daoud. The court now releases Mayfield to home detention as he requested, and the FBI withdraws the ID they made of Mayfield's print. Mayfield, of course, sues. He wins $2 million from the FBI and the ability to continue to pursue his case against the uh, violation of the Patriot Act. He wins a court case in 2007, where several aspects of the Patriot Act are thrown out. But then the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, federal court, in 2009, overturns that case. Government lawyers, now employed by a new president, show no let-up in their vigilance to defend the Patriot Act passed by the predecessor. We lived in 1984, Mayfield told reporters. His house was searched, his home was searched, his family were surveilled and interviewed, and he was jailed. Mayfield did receive the $2 million and an apology from the FBI, but in 2010, the Supreme Court declined to hear his Fourth Amendment challenge to the Patriot Act. Well, indeed, the Patriot Act has never been litigated substantially at the Supreme Court level. And that, by default, means that it's mostly received support in the judiciary branch. 
Mayfield's case was denied a hearing at the highest court, as did the suit of an ISP owner who did not wish to hand over information and had to be protected under the name Doe due to the gag rule. Nor have they heard suits against third-party providers who, under the Patriot Act, handed information. Plaintiffs wishing to sue have not been heard by the Supreme Court. In Humanitarian Law Project v. Ashcroft, the court finally spoke and in a 5-4 decision supported the constitutionality of the act against a free speech challenge. A Kurdish workers' party wished to have benign contact with groups identified as terrorists by the State Department. Purposes of their fundraising was to provide humanitarian aid and hopefully convert these people to see the error in their ways. The Supreme Court looked at the law and backed Congress, which made the law clear according to the author of the decision, Chief Justice Roberts. The law banned aid in any form. Even if acts are lawful, Roberts wrote, resources provided could be used for unlawful ends. Congress's intent in that decision won out over absolute free speech. There might be a positive note domestically, however, a victory for the Fourth Amendment rights, won, and won by a person most would not consider a hero at all. Stephen Warshank was, by all accounts, a huckster, a TV fraudster. His commercials featuring a smiling Bob who had taken his male impotence treatment led to booming sales of his vitamin carotene, which had no documented effects of any kind at all. More than that, Warshank instituted a program. When callers ordered his products, phone operators would institute an add-on product, a recurring order of his useless vitamin, so they didn't have to go through the trouble of ordering it again. When callers tried to cancel, the calls were often disregarded. They'd then call their Visa or Amex and charge back the fee. Merchant banks started dropping Warshank's company because of the chargebacks that they were getting. Most banks don't want to see more than one chargeback out of a hundred legitimate charges from the company. More than that, and you are high risk. In a lot of cases, you'll be dropped by merchant banks. All of Warshank's behavior was bad up to this point, but then it got worse. He told the salespeople who were answering the calls coming from the Smiling Bob TV ads to do a double ding, charge cards twice. This would reduce that chargeback ratio. So, even though he was getting some chargebacks, they appeared to be more legitimate charges since they were double-dinging. So far, none of this is relevant to the Fourth Amendment at all. Warshanker was prosecuted, and investigators knew that his personal emails might contain evidence. The emails might reveal that he ordered the add-ons, that he ordered the double-dinging. Warshanker was convicted. But in Washington v. United States, the courts gave the most expansive fourth rights protection since cats. Emails they made clear were protected speech. The contents of the emails were protected speech. What somebody writes in an email could be the same as violating their Fifth Amendment rights, forcing them to testify against themselves, even if they are a TV fraudster. The victory, though, seems to be pale with recent events. In March of 2013, Guardian reporter Glenn Greenwald was contacted by a man who didn't reveal his name but said he had explosive details about what the United States government was doing to its citizens. He asked to set up an encryption system to transmit documents. It took a few months. Then, tell Greenwald his name and where he worked at Booz Allen Hamilton as a contractor for the National Security Agency of the United States. During a series of meetings with Greenwald, one in Hong Kong, he handed over documents, which proved what he was talking about. He cherry-picked those documents to avoid a WikiLeaks-style disclosure. But nonetheless, Snowden had taken thousands of documents from his former employer and had leaked many of them. When a newspaper receives information from a secret source, they normally take great pains to protect it. In the case of Edward Snowden, the NSA contractor, the Guardian newspaper in the UK was given instructions from the leaker not to protect his anonymity. He felt he was doing nothing wrong, and there was no reason to hide. He leaked details of an NSA program. The program involved the transfer of data on a regular basis to the National Security Agency from well-known and respected Internet companies, Google, Facebook, Hotmail, Yahoo, Apple, 
companies that have championed the privacy of user data in the past. You have to fight for your privacy or you lose it, Google CEO Eric Schmidt had said recently. All of these companies provided data from millions of Americans and provided that data on a regular basis in an easy-to-use form. This was PRISM, a computer system designed to make the information transfer painless, both for NSA and for the providers. Snowden says the NSA built an infrastructure that allows it to intercept almost anything. The vast majority of human communications are automatically ingested without targeting, he said. If I wanted to see your emails or your wife's phone, all I have to do is get the intercepts. I don't want to live in a society that does these things, Snowden says. He's a traitor, according to senators and congressmen, from Peter King to Dianne Feinstein. He's a narcissist getting publicity, says Jeffrey Tubin, legal commenter. He's a hero, says Daniel Ellsberg, whose own leak of the Pentagon Papers also involves some Fourth Amendment violations to him and changed the nature of what Americans knew about Vietnam policy. And he's a hero to Ron Paul, who says the NSA program is an anathema to liberty. Ellsberg calls the PRISM program an executive coup against the Constitution, calls the FISA court that is authorizing the warrants for this program, a secret kangaroo court, wholly differential to the executive branch. The Electronic Frontier Foundation has called for a full public investigation into domestic surveillance activities, a new church committee, they say. 46% of Americans in a Rasmussen poll said they think that they've been monitored. A June 10th Guardian report found that the George Orwell book, 1984, climbed Amazon's list of movers and shakers up 83% since the revelation. Most American citizens are opposed to the information gathering scheme. Only 26% support it. But when expressed in a question in terms of, would you agree with this program in order to combat a domestic terrorist attack? Support goes up to 45%. A Washington Post poll. President Obama has commented several times on the matter, and he has asked Americans to have confidence in their elected Congress and president, while saying it was okay to debate this matter. Jay Carney, spokesman for the White House, insisted that there was a substantial provision of information about this program to Congress. It wasn't something wholly located in the executive branch. President Obama said to the American people, if we don't have trust, we are going to have problems here. Further revelations indicate that the federal government ordered Verizon to produce to the NSA an electronic copy of all call detail records, or telephony metadata, created by Verizon for communications between the United States and abroad, or wholly within the United States, including local telephone calls. This revelation was particularly embarrassing because, in March of 2013, at a Senate Intelligence Committee hearing, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon had asked National Security Advisor Jake Clapper a question. Does the NSA collect information on millions of Americans? No, sir. Not wittingly was the answer. He has now admitted that that answer was the least untruthful one. According to Clapper, what the NSA is doing is not collection. It's like looking at the Dewey Decimal numbers in the library but not taking the book off the shelf and reading it. The greatest fear I have, Snowden said, is that nothing will change. Indeed, a Washington Post poll found that 45% of Americans would allow the government to monitor everyone's online activity if it would prevent further attacks. President Obama, in a PBS interview with Charlie Rose, said that American phone calls and emails were not being directly monitored. The NSA cannot listen to your telephone calls, and the NSA cannot target your emails, he said. The NSA said that of all the phone calls, it investigated about 300. It says the monitoring has foiled terror plots in the U.S. and in over 20 countries. Glenn Greenwald, the blogger, reporter who had broke the story, says President Obama's answer about not listening in on Americans is deceitful. FISA, he says, is a fig leaf. A warrant only needed to be obtained when an American talks to an American on American soil. When asked recently by Senator Wyden how many Americans have been listened to, the NSA cites staff and technical challenges in answering the question. 
As I'm recording this, Snowden is playing international hopscotch, going from country to country, in some cases revealing more about NSA activities. The flight has distracted from the constitutional issues that he brought up in his original leak, I believe. The focus on Edward Snowden as a person has distracted from the whole issue about what he revealed. As a person, I think he's your classic hero-slash-villain in that he represents a person who any democracy cannot celebrate all that much. Trusted government position, and he took thousands of documents to leak against a policy he didn't agree with. As a society, however, we benefit probably from knowing that this information, this program was going on. In the Nobody likes leakers, but most of our newspapers and a key part of freedom of the press, not mentioned in the Constitution, but a key part in its functioning, is the ability of government officials to go off the record and leak information. The politics in this are notable, all right? The Fourth Amendment, we talked about that poll that showed 45% of Americans, I mean, it's not a majority. The Fourth Amendment is an issue for everyone, but its context in online protections is more important to younger people who spend more of their time online, than generally speaking, than those old. So the politics are notable here. President Obama was re-elected in 2012 with an uber-majority of youth voters. The excitement for his campaign came from that source. The Snowden matter has seemed to now separate President Obama from some of his best and most vocal supporters. Not good timing for the 2014 elections if he wants to get another uber-majority going in order to get a Congress of his own party and to have a good final two years. The Snowden matter has made for some odd uh, bedfellows, and you've really seen an alignment of the left and right libertarian groups. Because the Democratic Party, normally the more liberal one, normally the one that would be more likely in American politics to be shocked by something like the, the NSA disclosure, because they are currently in government, in the executive branch, you're seeing figures as John Kerry, President Obama, Joe Biden, defending those policies and defending the foreign policy of the United States. So the issue has brought up a few conflicts between allies and the political scene normally buried below the surface. And for that reason, this is interesting. We'll see how it plays out. And certainly while I don't want to dwell on the political game, 2014 is coming up. Stakes are pretty high for a president. It's not really a lot of time here as we are midway through 2013 to build up a coalition that will help you do the near impossible which is to override that six-year itch. Uh, six years of a presidency, normally a president loses seats, and it's a big loss. Besides the politics, what do we make of recent revelations? Well, it doesn't shock me that a considerable number of Americans will not think very much of that the government having more metadata to many would seem normal to wage war on a global enemy that is using those networks there is something that defies expectations about constitutional rights. There's something shocking and illogical almost about them, about the power that makes the king's men and the state's police knock at your door, ask permission to enter, seek it from a high legal authority under the most extreme circumstances. The American system, influenced by British law, has come to believe that a government, king, or elected majority has no inherent benevolence. Government always has to prove what it is doing, that the actions it's taking has the merit of good government behind it. This is the theory behind warrants. The Fourth Amendment exists as one of 10 Bill of Rights amendments and only 27 total amendments in the entire history of the United States that made the cut. It plays an important supporting role to the Fifth, We've talked about that often. The fifth bans involuntary self-incrimination. That would be a fairly weak right if police could simply make your house, things, papers testify against you. Or if they could secretly tape you and without you knowing have you inadvertently confess. The twin rights, fourth and fifth, are important for those government-loathing anti-federalists facing a new constitutional government that they didn't trust and with the power of state legislatures to enforce that skepticism. Now, one can overdo all this talk about the Bill of Rights, which we so treasure, and create a religion of rights. But the right statements, we must remember, are usually not absolute. 
The Bill of Rights does not say the government cannot enter your home. It says the government can, with a warrant, that lists what it wants. And it's not impossible to get one. So it's important to remember that the Constitution is not all defense. It's a covenant of what government and governed can and cannot do, how the government should operate. Implied in the Constitution is that the government has a right to preserve itself. A terrorist attack devastated the United States in 2001 and attacking in three areas, increasing the stakes to preventing an attack that could shut down the United States if it was more broad. Spain, the UK, India have all felt the weight of terrorist attacks since 9-11. Imminent attack is no longer a danger waiting at a border. It is 24-7, and a small, nationless group can do a lot of damage. At the same time, the Constitution is fairly clear in the Fourth Amendment. Not only are American citizens' houses protected, their papers and their effects are at well. The word papers was clearly used, not just home. Papers, to me, clearly translates to the modern communications of today. Papers were how a man of colonial times communicated with the world. It would seem a higher protection is warranted and more transparency and legal oversight needed than what the prison program that's been leaked is providing. It is clear that when information gathered is, is abused and the only option is not to gather. Prior to internet intercepts, there was hardwire phone tapping. Before that, there was mail snooping and informant networks that could rival the computers of today. I look at a somewhat different example now in a, in a different setting. Lower Marion School District is in a Tony suburb of Philadelphia. Students woohoo, were given laptops from the school, but as they took them home, a few students noticed something odd about them. Students noticed that the green webcam lights were coming on at odd times when they were home. Those who said something was wrong were told not to worry. As it turned out, Lower Marion had installed track and trace devices designed to prevent theft. They were using them in order to watch students. The watching would be random, would rotate through computers, would be recorded in a server. The head of the tech department in the school knew about it. The key administrators knew about it. The principal knew about it. The program was revealed only when a student was disciplined for improper behavior at home. He's a minor, so all the details haven't come out, but I believe that he was eating candy that someone observing the video thought was pills. The school system had captured thousands of images of students, some men without shirts. They captured images of students in their bedrooms. They captured images of family members, private citizens interacting with the students. No internal check stopped the program. In fact, the tech department thought it was great. Administrators didn't question their control over students and their right to do this, nor did the principal. Only a lawsuit and a judge's order ended the practice. That small-scale example perhaps says to us that power where it exists will be used. Those in power will gather more information than they need. They will elevate their own motives and their own important tasks. In this case, having a well-functioning school district and disciplining students where necessary over abstract concepts of liberty. Only automatic protections, judicial overrides, a wary citizen, and a free press will protect that abstract liberty. My general rule of thumb is this. People's brains have been the same size throughout the meaningful history that we can study. People of the 18th century didn't have GPS or databases, but they knew as much as we do about the motives of men and women. Given the choice to reset once a king was overthrown in what was a fairly new experiment with the United States of America, it had been tried in the Netherlands, it had been forms of it in Poland, the Swiss, Swiss Confederation and things like that, fairly new experiment, could have had an opportunity to reset everything and say, as long as a government's elected by people, you don't have to worry about it. They did not, and I believe they were correct. They set up a system that treated voted-in incumbents who had a majority of support of the people, and they treated them no different than a king in terms of their power and the limits on the power with checks and balances. As the American system improved and more people were able to vote, they insisted to continue those checks and balances in most cases. 
I think those who framed the Constitution, and more importantly, those in, who insisted during that process on adding in certain rights and protections with legal force, realized that the people don't vote every 20 minutes. They vote two years, every four years, every six years, depending on the office. And the people are not in every nook of government, and a smart politician knows how to keep them out. I think it's not a terrible idea to look at some of their correction, checks and balances, and constitutional rights with legal protection. So more frequent congressional oversight. You know, perhaps it's not just good enough to tell a group of seven, you know, here's a program we're working on. More state involvement. Perhaps the state has a right not to get involved in a specific investigation, but to know about the information gathered about its state citizens where they're not accused of a crime. But it seems the more logical solution here would be to replace some of the missing judicial oversight over this program and to put a little bit more teeth into the warrant program. There are some issues where history is only of mild help. This is not one of them. The problems of a great republic facing enormous threats have been around for some time. Here's what the church committee said. The root cause of the excesses which our record amply demonstrates has been the failure to apply the wisdom of the constitutional system of checks and balances to intelligence activities. Our experience as a nation has taught us that we must place our trust in laws and not solely in men. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. There you can get an archive of just about everything we've recorded since 2006. Hours and hours of podcasts over a wide range of issues. I hope you'll consider that. You can tweet me at myhist, at M-Y-H-I-S-T. If you do like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.